This is Past Perfect, CU Medieval Radio's program on medieval and early modern history and culture, in association with Civil Radio FM 98. Hello there, I'm Christopher Melka, and you're listening to Past Perfect, CEU Medieval Radio's show on medieval and early modern history and culture in association with Civil Radio FM 98. Um, Here at CEU, the Department of Medieval Studies has been very fortunate this past uh, week to have a conference called Historic Famagusta, a millennium in words and images on the subject of Cyprus uh, from the medieval... um, early modern and modern time periods. It's been absolutely fascinating. And we're joined today by one of the um, contributors to this conference. Um, His name is Nicholas Correas. He is a senior researcher at the Cyprus Research Center in Nicosia. He has a PhD from the University of London, and his uh, research interests include Cyprus uh, in the medieval period, the Crusades, and the Latin Church. Uh, Thank you very much for joining us today. Well, thank you very much. It's a very nice surprise to be here. And uh, I really um, look forward to taking part in this program. It's uh, the first time I'm uh, taking a part in a program on a radio station that it seems to be devoted or has um, a, a slot devoted to medieval subjects. And I'm very pleased that a conference on uh, what used to be the island's biggest and most uh, bustling port in the medieval period or part of it um, uh, is taking place here in Hungary. <laughs> I mean, I think it shows that uh, um, here, you know, people are outward looking. I mean, it's, uh, but of course, this is the heart of Central Europe. So uh, I suppose uh, that's uh, to be expected. Well, well, definitely. And there's, mm-hmm. there's, there's a lot to be said, you know, well, one for um, uh, a radio station like CU Medieval Radio being able to uh, have a bunch of people um, come in and talk to us about their um, research interests from all over. And uh, we're very happy to have you here. So um, the uh, just to start out with yes. um, a brief word. I mean the, uh, the the topic of the conference was the city of uh, Famagusta. Um, if you don't mind, um, would you mind starting out with just a brief explanation of why this was such an important city for Cyprus in the Middle Ages? Well, it became an important city. And then, for various reasons, it stopped being important. But okay. uh, what happened was that uh, Cyprus was a province of the Eastern Roman Empire until it was conquered in 1191 by King Richard I of England, mm-hmm. who then sold it to Guy de Lusignan, the dispossessed king of the Latin Kingdom of Jerusalem, mm-hmm. who founded a French Roman Catholic dynasty that ruled this island as kings of Cyprus for the next 300 years, to put things quite briefly. Yes. <laughs> now... Famagusta, for most, um, uh, um, uh, from uh, 1191 to 1291, the first century of the um, uh, um, Lusignan Kingdom's existence, did not begin as a very important port. Other ports to further to the south and west, such as Limassol and Paphos, were more important. But what made Famagusta take off was the fact that the last Latin Christian possessions in uh, Syria and Palestine from 1260 to 1290 were slowly being recaptured or reconquered by the Muslims, mm-hmm. the Mamluks to be uh, precise, under a succession of able sultans. Mm-hmm. And this triggered successive waves of refugees from what was then called Latin Syria, which included you know, Palestine, modern-day Lebanon, the coastal areas, the, the Crusader to Cyprus. States. Yes. And these refugees included not just Latin Christians, but various denominations of Syrian Christians, Jacobites, Nestorians, Melkites, um, uh, uh, Roman Catholics. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and uh, they all 
settled in various parts of Cyprus, but especially Famagusta, because it was a port opposite Syria and Lebanon and all these areas. And so they was the easiest place for them to reach geographically. Mm-hmm. And by 1291, with the fall of the last two cities in the Latin East, Tyre and Acre, mm-hmm. then you had a final wave of refugees. And because the popes placed an embargo on Latin Western merchants trading directly with Muslims in their Syria or Egypt or wherever, C- Cyprus in general and Famagusta in particular became very prosperous because you had Western, Cypriot and Eastern merchants who could trade there. Mm-hmm. It was a um, Christian Roman Catholic island kingdom located on the fringes of the Muslim world. And so the Cypriots profited greatly as middlemen because Western merchants would come and buy goods from the East at quite inflated prices, <laughs> with the, okay. the, the Cypriots making profits, not just the merchants, but the nobles with agricultural products, and um, also even the king with the tax revenues. Sure, you sure, see, sure. there was really two times of trade. There was a so-called carrying trade, mm-hmm. which involved the exports of luxury spices, um, uh, jewelry, gold, and uh, um, other luxury items from the East, that is to say from the Middle Eastern lands, and uh, even further fields such as India, even China, mm-hmm. such as silks, to Western Europe, via Cyprus, among other places, and from Western Europe, the importation of wood and uh, iron, and which was in short supply in the Muslim world, uh, textiles, Finnish textiles, okay. to the east. So that was the so-called carrying trade because it simply passed through Star- Cyprus. The goods were not manufactured there. And a lot of them didn't even stay there. They just came to Cyprus and then they were shipped further east or further west, whatever the case might be. Mm-hmm. So Cyprus was really a transit point. But it was a very lucrative transit point for the Cypriot society for about 50 years, from 1290s until the 1340s when the papal embargo was lifted. The other kind of trade was agricultural produce. And there, Cypriot trade continued really right until the fall of the um, Latin Kingdom, um, which later became a Venetian colony, mm-hmm. the Ottoman Turks in 1571. Because Cyprus produced um, uh, well, wheat, uh, oil, that's olive oil, wine, sugar, a very important export, um, uh, barley, uh, pulses, mm-hmm. and most of all, camlets. Okay, camlets was a high um, uh, value um, uh, fabric made out of goats or camel hair. Okay. And it was like a sort of cashmere. Really? It had the different colors, and it was very popular not just in the West, but in the Black Sea areas and in the East. Mm-hmm. So you had separate produce being exported, mm-hmm. but also this carrying trade. And uh, really, for 50 years, Famagusta benefited. But just as different factors cause the rise of a city, they can cause its decline. Right, right. And the three things that caused Famagusta's decline were the end of the papal embargo in 1344, mm-hmm. which meant that Western merchants could trade directly with the Muslim lands and bypass Famagusta, which it started doing to an increasing extent. The Black Death of 1348, sure, sure. which carried off a third of Cyprus population, as also in most parts of Europe and uh, the uh, Middle East. And the, if also um, uh, the wars which uh, um, King Peter I conducted against partly the Mamluks, but also the um, uh, um, uh, um, uh, Southern Turkish Emirates. Mm-hmm. So really these things caused a decline and then when Peter, uh, King Peter I sacked Alexandria in a spectacular but very damaging crusade, mm-hmm. this led to expensive war between Cyprus and the Malmuk Sultanate. It angered the Italian merchants. Genoa invaded Cyprus in 1373. Oh my. They took Famagusta, which they held for 90 years, and it was a backwater. 
and it never really recovered. They recovered partially under the Venetians, but even under the Venetians, because there was more trade with Western Europe, a lot of trade that had been in Famagusta relocated to Lanaka. I yeah. see. Okay. Yeah. Um, so we're talking about the rise and fall of a great medieval emporium. Mm-hmm. It started off as a commercial backwater, a sort of a, a, a quiet island port. It became a great bustling emporium, and then because of the Black Death and warfare. It's uh, at the end of the papal embargo mm-hmm. on direct trade between Muslims and Westerners. It's declined again. Well, sure. I think you, you mentioned King Peter of Cyprus, and I think mm-hmm. one of the most interesting things is that um, if you open the Canterbury Tales, and I believe it's the monk's tale, yes. you can see a, you know, very glorious ballad in rhyming couplets about King Peter of Cyprus mm-hmm. and his crusading efforts. And I think one of the um, most interesting things... Um, about medieval Cyprus in this instance is just the fact that one, because of its geographic location right at the eastern um, edge of the um, Mediterranean Sea, there are all of these, there's there's the opportunity for all of this different interaction among people from all over. So, I mean, the there there's this idea that um in under the Lusignan dynasty that the 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 everyday people there spoke Greek and identified as Greek and were Greek orthodox and that the nobles and the royal court in particular the um the kings were you know frenchmen that they were these latin catholics but then um what you're telling me about all of these refugees coming into Famagusta from the crusader kingdoms it's uh, sort of adds an adds a new little bit to to the that's well, the traditional view which you mentioned. It's far too simplistic. It, it, I, yes. I, I, I think the more, the, more you, the more I'm hearing about it, I mm. think the more you I see, begin to see. You have a French ruling class, that's true. Mm-hmm, sure. And it stays mainly French for most of uh, Cyprus history. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's penetrated by Italians and Catalans from Western Europe. Okay, right. You get a few Greeks rising up to the noble families, mm-hmm. though you get more Greeks as landowners. So... One mistake was that sometimes Greek landowners were confused as um, nobles simply because they held faiths. But even mm-hmm. so, you get about four Greek families who become ennobled. Mm-hmm. You get um, a, a Caucasian family. Really? Who were originally Muslims, but they were mercenaries of King James II and the children um, were brought up as Christians. I and see. one of those families actually attains noble status. So even the noble class, although mainly French, has non French elements such as Catalans, sure, Italians, sure, sure. some Greeks, and even a Caucasian. Yes, and, and uh, in further down, the merchants, they are very cosmopolitan because mm-hmm. you have um, uh, um, Catalonian, that is Spanish, Provencal, mm-hmm. Genoese, Venetian, Pisan merchants, in other words, from uh, most of the um, uh, Latin Europe, let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. But on a smaller scale, you get uh, Eastern Christian merchants, though they um, uh, tend to uh, have smaller scale operations, such as local uh, you know, cabotage, so trade between Cyprus and the adjoining areas of Syria mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. even southern Turkey. You get Greek merchants. So the merchants are quite cosmopolitan. And uh, the peasantry would have been mainly Greek, but they would have included some Armenians and Syrians, especially Maronites. Mm -hmm. So it is a cosmopolitan society. You also have a lot of slaves. You have a slave market in Famagusta, one of the major slave markets. And you get slaves imported from uh, um, the Aegean lands. Okay. Because of uh, Turkish piracy in the Aegean areas. From um, uh, Turkey itself, because of Christian piracy. Um, uh, from uh, Africa, you get black slaves, mm-hmm. you get Mongolian slaves, you even get um, uh, um, Slavic slaves from uh, um, uh, what is now modern-day you know, Bulgaria and Romania. Right, right, yes. right. So, of course, they add to the um, uh, ethnic mix. Uh, so it's really melting pot suggests that they were all sort of uh, um, uh, culturally interacting. They were. 
But sure. you did still have distinct communities. Sure, sure, sure. Group around their own churches. But they borrowed from each other, stylistically and artistically and so on. So there was interaction. And, uh, of course, you had a multiplicity of languages. You okay. had the Latin, the language of the Latin church. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, you had the French, a kind of... Uh, Different French, a Cypriot French, which evolved from the French of uh, Latin Syria, because most of the French who came to Cyprus, the nobles, had um, estates in uh, Latin Syria. Right, and right, when right. they lost those estates, they stayed on Cyprus. So you have a kind of distinctive Cypriot French. Mm-hmm. You have Italian, Spanish. You have the Eastern languages, Arabic, Syriac, <laughs> even Coptic, because you have Copts who settled on Cyprus from the mid-14th century. Mm-hmm. And, of course, um, uh, most of the population, they did speak Greek. We have letters from uh, Pope John the Twenty Second referring to the Greeks as a majority. But uh, it was certainly not a, you know overwhelming majority. Right, it's right, difficult right. to say. Um, I think uh, Professor Ballard, who has uh, he's an authority on the Genoese in the Mediterranean, said that the Greeks were probably about sixty percent. I would say that was about right. Okay, yes. right. I mean, reconstructing yes. dem- demographics so, is yes. always very difficult. Yes, it to is, do. especially in medieval periods. But uh, no, it was um, uh, quite a, um, a polyglot and cosmopolitan society. And although the economic base was agricultural, mm-hmm. the trade was played an important part, agricultural exports. So for, uh, it was a, quite an export-driven economy as well. How very fascinating. Mm. We are going to take a very short break right now. Um, please enjoy the music. We'll be back momentarily. Welcome back. I'm Christopher Melke, and you're listening to Past Perfect in association with Civil Radio FM 98. We're joined today by Professor Nicholas Correas and um, talking on the subject of Cyprus today. Now, um, at the Famagusta conference, it's my understanding that you were presenting on artisans and craftsmen. Um, Would you mind going over a little bit about uh, what your paper was on, if you don't mind? Yes, uh, my paper is really on the apprentices, apprentice contracts. In Famagusta in the early 14th century, Famagusta at that time was a very thriving commercial emporium. Mm-hmm. as part of the um, Latin Kingdom of Cyprus. And we have about 3,000 contracts written in Latin, commercial contracts surviving, mm-hmm. drawn up by Genoese notaries working in Cyprus, notably Lamberto di San Buccetto and Giovanni di Rosa, Roch, Roja, mm-hmm. who worked in Cyprus between the years 1296 and 1310. Okay. And... Most of these 3,000 contracts are contracts between merchants and they involve lending and borrowing money, exporting goods, importing goods. Mm -hmm. But we have a few contracts, about half a dozen, which are apprentice contracts. Mm -hmm. In other words, people learn to trade and uh, they had to work with a master for anything from three to eight years. And the master undertook to feed and clothe them and train them and sometimes to give them the tools for practicing their trade. Okay. Uh-huh. And the people working there undertook to cooperate with the master and, and as long as it was something to do with the trade and not uh, to work even inside and outside the house for him. And uh, the master p- said he would provide for them in sickness and in health. So, But so what is um, interesting about these contracts is how they compare with contracts in Genoa. Because there are similar provisions. For example, in lucrative trades like drapers and tailors, the apprentices are only for three years. Mm-hmm. But in less lucrative trades like uh, sailors, masters of adzes and adges and axe, which is used for um, 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 uh, fashioning boats mm-hmm. and uh, um, such tra- um, uh, trades, the contracts were for six to eight years because the masters wanted to have their apprentices as an unofficial source of tre- cheap labor. Aye, I and see. <laughs> in general, we have exactly the same phenomenon. And of course, the contracts always involve men, both as masters and apprentices. You never hear about women. Right. Although women were part of the separate uh, labor force. We know that women worked in taverns and sometimes they owned them. Oh, okay. It's just that uh, women's employment in the Middle Ages 
and probably many parts of the world even now, was much more informal. You didn't have legally binding contracts. And of course, because it was informal, generally women were paid less. But that yes. was one of the inequalities which, uh, especially in the Middle Ages, and as we know, still exists. Mm-hmm. Yes. But uh, the interesting thing is that, you see, even though there's an abundance of documents, where they're misleading is that because they're written by Genoese notaries, a lot of the customers are Genoese or Latin Christians, Christians from Western Europe. And they are... Latin Christians in general and Genoese in particular overrepresented. I see. Uh-huh. Whereas non-Latin Christians, uh, Syrian, um, uh, um, uh, Orthodox, uh, Greeks, Maronites, Nestorians, um, uh, Jacobites, mm-hmm. and other groups are underrepresented because uh, they wouldn't be going to expensive Genoese notaries. Either they would have their own notaries mm-hmm. or they might even have oral agreements. So even though there's a wealth of information in these Genoese notarial deeds. I took care to point out in my talk that this can give a very lopsided picture sure, of what's sure, going on sure. in Famagusta because it was written, most of the contracts are written by people who are quite wealthy, not always, but moderately to very, very wealthy. They are clearly written because money is involved usually. And the only reason we have them is because they were part of the notary's work, they kept them, and they are, happen to be in Genoa, in the Genoese archives. Mm-hmm. Whereas... Other types of uh, written uh, evidence, perhaps uh, written in Cyprus, mm-hmm. was lost because of wars. It just wasn't, you know, stored or anything. This, that, yes. That's that's a prod- problem mm. everywhere. In Hungary, mm. we have a lot of written evidence that's been destroyed. Whereas in mm. talking about apprenticeships, I know that one of my favorite stories about apprenticeship pr- apprenticing comes from Ghent, mm-hmm. where it was a. Um, it was a cloth merchant of some kind where the uh, a husband was apprenticed out to his wife for a total of three years, which mm. I, I only remember that because of how exceptional it was. And yes, it uh, is quite exceptional. <laughs> yes, very exceptional. Uh, mm. So um, the the sort of trades, though, um, the, you said mostly um, – what, what sort of trades are involved in these contracts? Well, the – Documents have a lot of references, mm-hmm. even though they're documents drawn up between merchants. They have a lot of references to artisans. Anything you can imagine, butchers, bakers, drapers, tailors, cloth cutters, um, uh, stone cutters, fashioners of keys, mm-hmm. water carriers, bath attendants. So it's all different types of I trades. Right. And also the ethnic origins are very varied, even though uh, there's a great big bias towards the Genoese and to Latin Christians. I mean, some of them come from... Uh, Catalonia in uh, northeastern Spain, others from uh, various parts of Italy, from France, mm-hmm. um, from uh, um, a few references to Greeks and Syrians. And uh, um, sometimes you have references to Jews. There's Jewish dyers because the uh, Jews were important as tanners and dyers in Cyprus. Oh, okay. Yes. But the problem is that usually when such art, um, artisans and craftsmen are mentioned, they're simply mentioned as witnesses to contracts because you would get uh, two wealthy merchants drawing up a contract. I see. And they would call these artisans to witness. Maybe they'd give them s- a small fee. And so they would say, this artisan, my name is so-and-so, and from someone from the name you know the origin. They usually mention their trade or their craft. Right, right, right. Yes. Uh, for example, you have furriers and you also have butchers and uh, all the other crafts I mentioned blacksmiths, especially for shoeing horses. They were big demands. But it's just the name, origin, and craft. We I don't see. know much about their lives. We don't know whether they were resident in Famagusta or just passing through because there's a very big transient population right, of I merchants see. and artisans. But some of the more interesting contracts show aspects of their personal lives, such as drawing up wills. We see who they left money to. Sometimes they may have had slaves and they manumitted them, or they left money to certain churches. Mm-hmm. Um, also, sometimes the wealthy ones engaged in trade themselves. So you get contracts in which one craftsman lends money to another craftsman. Mm -hmm. And the most popular type of loan was the so-called commenda contract in which the person who provided the the capital 
would get about three quarters of the profits, and the other person who was going to venture and trade would get one quarter. Mm-hmm. Now, this is quite a low proportion for the person who's actually going out to trade, but that's because the Eastern Mediterranean was a high-risk area. Yes. We had a lot of pirates. And so the people investing wanted to make sure they had a good return. That's why they want three quarters. I see, right. Yes. Whereas the person who's actually have to going out to trade and so on, he'll get one quarter of the profits. But then he, he's not providing any capital anyway. So he gets a quarter of the profits without providing the capital, and the other person who provides the capital gets three quarters. I see, I And see. this is called a commenda contract. It's common not only in Cyprus, but throughout the Latin um, ruled Eastern Mediterranean. In other words, Venetian Crete, Genoese Chios, Genoese and Venetian colonies on the Black Sea. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's uh, really co- um, uh, common throughout Latin-held areas of the Mediterranean, including Italy and Spain and uh, you know, southern France. Yeah. Do we know anything about the pirates in question? Well, yes, we do. Oh, okay, fantastic. I mean, generally, they are from all nationalities. You've right. got French, uh, Catalans, Turks, Greeks, um, uh, Italians... Um, especially, I think, uh, uh, the Genoese among the Italians. Mm -hmm. But uh, as the centuries progress, by the end of the Middle Ages, let's say 15th century, the biggest groups by far are the Catalans and the Turks. And in a way, it presages in a paradoxical fashion the great uh, naval clash between the uh, Spanish and the Ottoman Turks at Lepanto in 1970. You know, they had the most powerful navies. And yet... Among privateers, the most, uh, the, the largest and uh, um, uh, most effective uh, groups, powerful groups, were either the Catalan privateers, who were excellent seamen, they would terrorize the seas and the prayer and of shipping, mm-hmm. and the Turkish privateers. Hmm. Yeah. But you did have other nationalities as well. You had sure, French. Sure, sure. Yeah. And uh, the people who would uh, combat them would be um, uh, the navies of the various states in the East Mediterranean. Lusig and Cyprus had a small navy which used to go after pirates, mm-hmm. at least until the disaster of the um, uh, Genoese invasion, after which they didn't really have much of a fleet worth speaking of. I see, right. Um, the hospitalists who held roads from 1310 to 1522 for over 200 years, they had quite an effective navy which uh, went after pirates. And uh, against the menace of Turkish piracy, you have the Latin states in the Aegean and the Eastern Mediterranean, Cyprus, Venetian Crete, uh, Byzantine Constantinople, mm-hmm. um, uh, forming, and the papacy itself, which had its own small fleet, mm. forming naval alliances and combating Turkish piracy in the Aegean and Eastern Mediterranean with each of the parties agreeing to maintain a certain number of galleys, war galleys, every year, either four or six or you know, a certain amount. I see. Yes. So piracy was a problem at that time. I can imagine. Yes, I, I, it was, it was uh, one of the risks of trade. I can imagine. Seaborne trade. Yes. But at the same time, it could be very profitable as well. Well, it was. It was lucrative. It was dangerous. <laughs> it did have an ideological bent in that you would get Christian pirates preying on Muslim shipping and vice versa. Of course. But uh-huh. really, economic considerations were uppermost. And so you get Christians preying on Christians and Muslims and Muslims. <laughs> you know, if there just was um, uh, no ship, infidel ship to be around, I they see. would just go after one of their own. I see. Well, that 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 makes that makes a very perfect sense. Perfect sense, yes. exactly. Okay, and the um, are there any contracts involving um, what would be classified as like unskilled laborers, um, day laborers, people who who don't have this sort of apprenticeship? Well, there's um, a contract regarding the employment of sailors, apprentice sailors. Okay, uh-huh. and the masters of adzers. I mean, sailor obviously, obviously there was a skill. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't quite as lucrative as being a draper or a jeweler or things sure, like sure, that sure. or a, a, a furrier. So you do have some contracts. You see, there are very few in these actual documents. I've looked at most documents. I've only managed to locate five so far. I see. Whereas, for example, in Genoa, in the later Middle Ages, you get thousands of contracts. 
and there are over 232 professions listed. Although in Cyprus, it's still um, um, a couple of dozen professions, two or three dozen. So it's not bad, but uh, it's just that the volume of evidence is far smaller. Sure, sure, And sure. you can't do the detailed statistical analysis, which you could do with thousands of documents. You know, six is not such a good number as... No, no. Yeah, <laughs> 7,000. Um, this is this is a question just, you know, more out of my ignorance than really anything else. But um, regarding trades and different different sort of trades, um, um, one, uh, one, do we have guilds? Yes. Um, and two, um, are in Famagusta, for instance, um, do these trades take part in religious processions that you know of? Uh, there were religious processions in Famagusta and in Nicosia, especially okay. during the time of the Black Death mm -hmm. and later plagues and uh, calamities, natural disasters like droughts or earthquakes. But when they're described... Mm -hmm. It simply describes the religious denominations of the participants. In I other see. words, um, uh, Latins, Greeks, Copts, Jacobites, Maronites. I mean, for example, um, uh, some of the religious um, uh, processions which are described for Peter Thomas, who was a Carmelite friar who was also the papal legate mm -hmm. to the Eastern Mediterranean and the titular Latin, Latin patriarch of Constantinople. Um, he, w he was a very close friend to Philippe de Maizière, who was the chancellor yes. of King Peter I. And when Peter Thomas died shortly after the King Peter's attack of, on Alexandria, he died Peter Thomas early in 1366, Philippe de Maizière wrote a life of Peter Thomas, a biography, in which he describes in very laudatory terms, mm -hmm. um, because he hoped that uh, that way to have him canonized. He didn't succeed. I think Peter Thomas is uh, recognized by the Roman Catholic Church today as Beatus. Okay, blessed. blessed. But not as quite a saint. But in this um, uh, um, uh, biography, which Philippe de Maizière wrote in it's Latin mm -hmm. um, uh, um, uh, uh, about Peter Thomas, and it has the measure of being contemporary, he talks about how when there was a plague in Nicosia and Famagusta, Peter Thomas led the procession and they all prayed, and he spoke so eloquently that everyone was crying. And he adds that even the Jews and Muslims were crying. You know, oh, wow. yeah, they sort of yeah. <laughs> stretch his credulity to think of Jews and Muslims. Because also, so, you know, what language did he speak? He was spoken Latin. How many Jews and Muslims exactly. would have known Latin? <laughs> I mean, let alone Greek Christians and Eastern Christians. Sure, sure. But you see, it's a propaganda piece as well because he wants to show the Pope, you know, this is a wonderful chap. You must canonize him. Yes, yeah. and the, the Pope didn't buy it. Yes. I can imagine. Um, mm. Would you mind um, uh, saying a little bit about the guilds? But you see, the processions oh. Oh, to, sorry. <laughs> you know, sort of continue. Okay. They don't specifically mention craftsmen. Okay. And we have no mentions of guilds in Cyprus in the Lusignan or even the Venetian period. Really? Now, in the Ottoman period, because let's not forget that this conference covered Ottoman Famagusta as yes, well. Yes, definitely. You do have reference to guilds in Cyprus, the so-called Isnaf. Okay. So you do have guilt, but uh, that's probably because there's more Ottoman documentation on that subject. Yeah. And also because I think guilds were quite important throughout the Ottoman Empire. You had sort of rules about how many craftsmen could practice in a particular town and even on what religion mm -hmm. certain crafts could be. For example, I think uh, in the Ottoman period, potters were Christian, but butchers, for example, were Muslim. Okay. Tanners were Jewish. So I see, yeah. Um, uh, various crafts were according to religious confession. We don't get that for the Lusignan Venetian periods. I see. And there's no references to guilds. They may have existed, but uh, I think one reason they probably didn't exist was because a lot of the craftsmen, like the merchants, mm -hmm. were itinerant. They might work several years in Cyprus, then go somewhere else, because for guilds you need people who are settled you, you need and who live yeah. in a geographical area for generations, and they get together and they make you know these uh, guild associations a, a guild implies a certain amount of uh stability yes, in being the population sedentary, yes exactly a sedentary population not Definitely. one that's moving around and mm. definitely and so i mean 
On, on one hand, it could be an issue of documentation, but at the same time, I think mm. you have a very good point in that, you know, there is a lot of movement. There is. A family good says there's movements of goods, capital, and people. It's exactly what uh, I think the EU wants as an <laughs> EU area. And funnily enough, you get this in medieval Famagusta, <laughs> right. though it was long before the EU, <laughs> because you have lots of money changing hands. For example, you have merchants who appoint procurators, as they're called, uh-huh. to recover sums of money on the spots, either in Famagusta or elsewhere, if they can't be the, themselves. Uh-huh. And they say, I nominate so-and-so to recover the monies owed to me by so-and-so and the furniture by so-and-so and the goods by so-and-so. Debt collection yes. agencies. So, yeah, <laughs> really, yes. So you have a lot of money and, moves, uh, and goods moving around and you get these um, currency exchanges I d- undertake to give this currency to such a merchant and when he gets to Jenner he'll reimburse me in another currency yes so you have money moving around currency exchanges goods moving around of course people moving around I mean it's great mobility compared to the previous centuries it's very exciting we but we should never forget that this mobility in Cyprus and elsewhere probably involves only quite a small proportion of the population most people continue to be you know Peasants working on the land, living in the same village for generation to generation, but there was an increased mobility among certain sections, mainly in coastal towns. Very exciting. We will take a short break, but we will be back momentarily. Welcome back. Uh, I'm Christopher Melke, and we're joined today by Nicholas Correas. Uh, he's a senior researcher at the Cyprus Research Center in Nicosia. Thank you very much for joining us today. Well, thank you very much. It's great to be able to discuss my own subjects uh, here in Hungary in Budapest, in the heart of Europe. Mm-hmm. And uh, as uh, some of the listeners probably know, there's been a conference on Cyprus over the past few days, which covers um, uh, Lusignan, that is French medieval, Venetian, and Ottoman Cyprus. Mm-hmm. And in fact, this conference follows on from a previous conference that was held in Paris four years ago, mm-hmm. which only covered really Lusignan Cyprus, that is to say the French Lusignan Kingdom of 1191 to 1473. I see. But it's nice to have two conferences on Famagusta in four years, and also very nice to have one in Hungary. It's it's very nice to have mm-hmm. you all. And um, continuing with uh, mm-hmm. our talk about um, workers in the last um, section, I mean, mm-hmm. we we talked a little bit about um, we, we talked a little bit about this. But you, would you mind telling me a little bit more about uh, women workers um, in Famagusta or in Cyprus in general? Well, the women workers on which I have got the most information mm-hmm. are the people who worked in taverns, sure. who owned them, because sometimes you have contracts in which they want to get certain goods. For example, we know from a 15th century contract that pasta was produced and eaten in Cyprus, in taverns. Okay. Because this contract is rather tragic, actually. It's about a clerk in the Latin church who goes to this tavern, and he's with some friends, and they meet some other friends, and they all start, I think, carousing and singing. And by accident, he has a knife for cutting pasta, and he... Um, uh, um, sticks it into someone else's chest, killing him accidentally. Oh, my goodness. Of course, there's a hell of a a a commotion. He's put in jail, but then because he's a cleric, he has to go to Rome, and uh, there's an inquiry in the end. He's absolved. I see. But it shows you that pasta was eaten in taverns, and and also we have um, uh, women working there and sometimes owning taverns, not Mm. just in Cyprus, but outside Cyprus. We have references to Cypriot women Owning taverns in Alexandria, where you had Christian communities, and they wanted to, to you know, drink in a mm-hmm. predominantly Muslim country where alcohol is not allowed, but they had their own quarters, and uh, sure. the Cypriot woman has tavern, and she imports wine from Crete. How fascinating. Yes. And there's another Cypriot woman in Famagusta who signs a contract to buy part of a house 
she probably wants an extension because uh, and we know that she has a tavern and uh, the fact she wants to buy part of a house suggests that she lived and worked above the shop as it were mm -hmm. yes and expansion mm -hmm. also suggests that business was booming yes exactly <laughs> And uh, there must have been women working in uh, the um, uh, uh, you know, cloth industry, perhaps uh, as uh, helping tailors and uh, in other jobs. Mm -hmm. But uh, you know, we, we contracts don't generally mention women. It's uh, the very um, male-dominated. Uh, one of the reasons is because women were paid less. Sure, sure. And so someone employing a woman would not want to write a contract which bound him to pay certain wages and uh, adhere to certain conditions. I see, they right. Were, generally not just in Cyprus but throughout the Middle Ages and unfortunately even today mm -hmm. seen as cheaper labor than men. Uh, are these usually married women or unmarried women? The contracts don't usually tell us. I see. Sometimes they mention women who have had a relationship with uh, um, uh, for example one of the apprentice contracts mm -hmm. regards um, uh, someone whose mother was a Greek mm -hmm. or a Syrian Christian her name is Eleni which is a very common Greek name Helen. Oh, I see. Yes. Mm -hmm. And he was a natural son of a Genoese. And his mother apprenticed him to someone who's clearly of the same family as this Genoese who was deceased. So we have here a probably Greek mother, mm -hmm. a widow. Well, not a widow because she's never married. But the man she had a carnal relationship with, and this is mentioned in the document, mm -hmm. and by whom she had a natural son, has died. And now she's apprenticing her natural son to one of his relatives. I see, I yes. see. So obviously you had relationships and uh, sometimes this involved free women, but also, of course, slave women. Because when the Latin merchants from uh, France and uh, Italy and Spain and uh, um, other areas came to the east, they did not bring their women folk with them. The women folk stayed at home. I see. And I so see. they were short of female company. And one way was to have female slaves mm -hmm. because uh, slaves could not say no. They had to have sexual relations with their masters. Right, right. And the other way was to get uh, probably um, uh, you know, some of the poorer free women mm -hmm. and have an informal relationship as a sort of concubine. Mm -hmm. And in fact, you have uh, um, uh, laws on this. You have the assizes of uh, um, the Latin kingdom of Jerusalem and uh, Lucifer and Cyprus of the burgess courts. Burgesses were people who were legally free but they were not nobles I see. they belonged to the um, uh, what we call today I suppose you know, the middle classes the artisans, towns wealthy artisans, artisans I see uh -huh. and uh, they talk about uh, what compensation a man can seek if he's been in a relationship with a woman for a long time and then uh, you know she leaves or he, and he spends a lot of money on her mm. so you know this thing obviously went on sure is, is Cyprus like the other medieval um, kingdoms where in the larger cities there were officially licensed city brothels, for instance? I've had no reference to city brothels. I see. But again, the assizes of the course of Burgesses mm -hmm. refers to loose women, so-called sinful li women living I in their areas which are of ill repute mm -hmm. and uh, how... Um, uh, you know, they should be um, uh, policed, and uh, if they commit offences, what punishments are due for them. So brothels must have existed, and there must have been certain areas where women of ill repute lived. And, um, uh, of course, in Cyprus, like other medieval cities, you have bathhouses. You have several rentals sure. to baths in Nicosia. Mm -hmm. Indeed, the, um, uh, the Italian communes, which were quite powerful because they had played a big role in Cypriot trade, when they came to agreements with the various kings of Cyprus, they wanted to have their own area with their own lodge their own ovens for baking their own bread. They want to, didn't want to have to use the communal ovens of uh, um, uh, the town in general. They want to have their own ovens. Mm -hmm. And sometimes their own bathhouses. I see, references I see. Genoese bathhouses. And we know that in Europe, uh, um, uh, bathhouses had sometimes dysfunction. So although there's no evidence, it's possible. Sure. That in Cyprus it was the same. 
I see. Um, and along the lines of the, these neighborhoods with mm. their, their mm. own institutions, I mean, mm. what sort of institutions would you say were within these ethnic neighborhoods? And what which w- ones would you say are more broadly um, well, spread out? ethnic neighborhoods, sometimes people, what springs to mind is ghettos, where communities live exclusively in one neighborhood and everyone living there belongs to the same community. Well, in Cyprus, what you have in Famagusta and also in Nicosia, mm-hmm. you have certain parts of the city where Latins, Latin Christians predominated, other parts where perhaps Greeks predominated or Syrian Christians. Mm-hmm. But even where the Latin Christians were majority, we still have some Greeks and Syrians living there. Oh, of course, and right. the same was true of uh, other parts of the city where the Greeks and Syrians were majority. This means they were the exclusive community. So really, you don't have exclusive ethnic neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. You have uh, certain neighborhoods, for example, in Famagusta, the Latins seem to have been the predominant in the center, the Greeks in the south, and the um, um, Oriental Christians, Nestorians, Jacobites, um, uh, Melkites, um, uh, Maronites in the um, uh, north to northwest. Mm-hmm. Yes, but uh, this is very, very informal. I mean, this is based on the churches located, the surviving churches right, in right. Famagusta. Also, we have some uh, laws on town crying about how the town criers read the bands, proclamations, royal proclamations. In Nicosia, had to read them first in French, <laughs> then in Syriac, and then in Greek, okay. which would seem to show the importance of the respective ethnic groups in Nicosia. I see, yes. I see. Sort of a hierarchy of languages. Yes, exactly, yes. Because uh, whichever language comes first is either the most numerous community or at least the most important. Obviously, the Latinx community is ruling class. It had a lot of urban Syrian concentrations, especially in Famagusta, but also in Nicosia, because the Syrians, they have their own law courts, the so-called Reis. And you do get Greeks, but the Greeks tend to predominate mainly in the countryside. So in the cities, although they have a Greek presence, it's not overwhelming. I see, I Mm. see. So Famagusta was a walled city in the Middle Ages, right? Not always. Not always. Okay, well... (laughs) There's reference to a castle in Famagusta in the 13th century, Mm -hmm. but the first reference to a wall being built is early 14th century, which is indicative of the city's newfound prosperity because it started expanding from the 1260s onwards. And uh, by 1291, with the last wave of refugees coming from Latin Syria, which we mentioned in an earlier program, Uh uh it really takes off until the 1340s. And uh, the wall is actually built by a usurper because uh, one of the kings of Cyprus who had a very long reign, which uh, coincided with the Augustus prosperity, was Henry II. Mm -hmm. He was epileptic. And uh, his brother tried to overthrow him with the help of a powerful noble faction. His brother was called Amore. And in an anonymous chronicle written in Italian, in which con- uh, contains um, uh, parts of uh, no longer surviving French chronicles in Italian translation, it's called the Chronicle of Amadi, named after its last um, uh, owner, who was a Venetian patrician. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there's reference to how um, uh, Amore, this usurper, started strengthening the walls around Famagusta and building them and bringing laborers. So obviously, I- by the early 14th century, it started to acquire walls. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, Certainly, this was continued under Henry II and Hugh, so it became a wall city in the first half of the 14th century. Mm-hmm. Nicosia would have had walls as well in the same period. Yes, yes. But not the present walls. The present walls of Venetian, because the Lusignan walls would have been far more extensive than the present walls which, have, um, which Nicosia and Famagusta have, mm-hmm. and they wouldn't have been able to withstand artillery. Ah. When the Venetians take over these cities, they demolish the existing Lusignan walls, and the Venetian style of building walls, as elsewhere in Europe... I mean, it's far more, they tend to be lower, far more squats, rounded towers, 
this sort of arrow-shaped uh, um, uh, bastion, so yes. that uh, the enemy will be surrounded by three sides, mm-hmm. and there's on ravelins, I think they're called as well, for keeping cannon, yeah. because they have all the um, developments of artillery, and the Venetian walls in Nicosia and of Famagusta, although they were supposed to um, uh, be able to help these cities withstand an Ottoman siege, the technology and experience they were built on were Venice's wars and the wars of other cities like Genoa, Pisa, the Duchy of Milan within the Italian peninsula. Mm. Because artillery was widespread, you had the tremendous developments in artillery, which meant that most medieval wars were useless. Mm. And so you have this new fortress architecture developing in the um, 15th and especially 16th centuries. Mm-hmm. I think the walls of uh, um, uh, Nicosia are supposed to be like those of uh, Cremona and Famagusta, like Mantua. So really the Italian Renaissance fortress architecture is exported to Cyprus yes. in the Venetian period. So Famagusta had walls, it had the Lusignan walls, but then it had the Venetian walls, which are still standing today. And in Famagusta's case, the wall was re- uh, reinforced by a very deep moat because hmm. I've walked along the walls of Famagusta, and you have a very, very deep moat. So it was very, very difficult for a besieger to storm the city. And in fact, when Famagusta was taken by the Ottoman Turks, the defenders surrendered because of starvation. It was an 11-month siege. Oh, my goodness. I mean, the famous siege of Malta, I think, was six to eight weeks. <laughs> this was an 11-month siege. It's phenomenal how they held out. Uh-oh. They expected a relieving fleet of Spanish and Venetians. Right. But even though this fleet had defeated the Ottomans in Lepanto, they didn't come to Cyprus. They sort of uh, um, uh, um, uh, discussed it. They got as far as Crete. They decided that it was too risky. And in the end, uh, um, uh, the Ottomans uh, um, uh, took the city from I the see. defenders who w- were starved to submission. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Proper proper. how to do a siege warfare, yeah. Yes. But you see, those walls were never actually stormed. I see. They were never breached. How interesting. Um, well, I bring up the walls because one of the questions that I wanted to ask was sort of the relationship between downtown Famagusta and its suburbs and hinterlands. I mean, was it something, was it very clear that these were two different communities or was there a lot of interaction between well, the Well, suburbs town and is a very good point. Okay. Because the existence of suburbs in Famagusta mm-hmm. marks the break between the Ottoman period and the earlier Venetian and Lusignan periods. During the Venetian and Lusignan periods, the population was all within the walls. Mm-hmm. When the Ottomans came, even though they took Famagusta after eleven month siege, they still felt insecure there, because they didn't want to have a pretim- the Ottoman garrison did not want a predominantly Christian population at their backs. Uh-huh. And in 1573, two years after the um, Ottomans took Famagusta, the Sultan issued a proclamation saying that the Christian population, apart from the artisans who were needed in the city, would have to move out. Mm. They could keep their shops, they could come and work by day, but in the evening they'd have to move out. And so the first suburbs outside the wall started coming into being. I see. And also the Ottoman sultans imported people from Anatolia, Muslims and Christians, mainly from uh, southern Anatolia, to Cyprus and to Famagusta. So you get various suburbs in the Ottoman period. And this is why even today, the Greek sector of Famagusta, which has been uh, occupied for the past uh, 38 years, it's now a deserted city, yes. very much, yeah, is called Varosha because Varosh is Turkish for suburb. Hmm. Because uh, the Greeks, like the other communities, had to move out from 1573 onwards and live outside the city in a suburb, though they could keep their churches. For example, there's a document that says that after the Ottomans took Famagusta, the Orthodox community was allowed two churches, St. George and another one called St. Uh, Simeon. Well, we don't we don't know exactly where it is. So they weren't expelled completely. They could keep their churches, they could work there by day, but they had to clear out in I the see. evening. Yes. Go back home. Yeah. Very. Many Muslims could stay in the city at night. 
Very interesting. We'll take a short break, and then we'll be back with uh, our concluding remarks. Welcome back. I'm Christopher Melke, and this is Past Perfect, uh, in association with Civil Radio FM 98. We're joined today by um, Nicholas Correas. Uh, thank you very much for being here today. Not at all. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me. And I just have one last question before we go. Um, I mean, very, very quickly, um, is there any reason why you think the Crusader Kingdom of Cyprus outlived all of the other Crusader Kingdoms? Is it just its geography or something else? Well, geography is very important. Sure, sure, sure. Because wood and iron were in short supply in the Muslim world, mm -hmm. not so much the Ottoman world, because the Ottomans are the ones who finally took Cyprus with a fleet, but in Mamluk, Egypt, and Syria, because the Ottomans had another neighboring Muslim empire until 1517 when they destroyed it. And this was the Mamluk state, the Mamluk Sultanate of Egypt and Syria, which lasted from 1250 to 1517, about 250 years. Mm -hmm. And the Mamluks were cavalry warriors. They had infantry as well. But Egypt and Syria had a tremendous shortage of wood, especially timber I see. and iron. And in fact, wood especially had to be imported from Anatolia, which was later came under Ottoman control. So that made things even worse. So the Mamluks did not have fleets. Mm -hmm. They did not have powerful fleets. And this meant that even though they tried to invade Cyprus, they had a failed invasion in the 1260s mm -hmm. when their ships ran aground on shoals outside the harbor of Limassol. They had a more successful invasion in 1424, when they, 26, sorry, when they reduced the kingdom of Cyprus to tributary status without actually destroying it. They just paid tribute to the Mamluks. But generally, the Cypriots were lucky in that their Muslim neighbors did not develop powerful fleets. You had piracy, of course, but that was raised. That wasn't a full-scale invasion. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the one major invasion they had before the Ottomans was the Genoese, who were Christians, and had plenty of wood in the forests of Europe. You know, behind Genoa, you've got the whole of Switzerland, northern Italy, plenty of forests there. Definitely. So, uh, geography does play a part. The fact that it's an island and that you take it, you need a fleet. But also, the fact that from the 12th to the end of the 15th century, mm -hmm. what you have in the Eastern Mediterranean, with the exception of the Mamluk Sultanate from 1250, you have lots of little states. Even the Ottomans begin as an emirate near Prusa, modern Prusa. And so you have Turkish emirates because the Seljuk Sultanate was, Sultanate was destroyed in 1244, the Battle of Kosedag by the Mongols. Um, so you have Turkish Emirates, you have a, um, a small um, declining Byzantine Empire, you have uh, Venetian Crete, you have the Catalan Duchy of Athens, you have the Principality of Achaea. There's lots, too many players. Yes. There's, so all this helps the Latin Kingdom to survive because even though it was not particularly strong, it did not have a particularly strong fleet, it did yeah. have invasions. Mm -hmm. There was no major power capable of ex extinguishing it until the Ottomans developed. They t conquered the whole of Anatolia from the Karamanids, and uh, then they conquered uh, Syria and Egypt from the Mamluks, the Balkans from the Byzantines and the um, uh, um, uh, um, uh, Serbian and Bulgarian kingdoms. So uh, until they become resources. a Balkan and Anatolian power, Cyprus is safe. But the Venetians could see what was happening because in, 15 f in the 1540s they fortified Kyrenia, a fortress there. They built the new walls of Famagusta to withstand artillery because they knew a Turkish element attack was coming, especially after the Ottomans had conquered Egypt and Syria and yeah, taken yeah, roads. Yeah. Yes. So they knew that attack was coming and uh, they certainly held off for a long time, but it wasn't most, quite enough. Most, yes. most certainly. Well, once again, thank you very much for joining us today. It's been an absolute pleasure mm. having mm. you here. Mm -hmm. um, 
So uh, for the listeners at home, just a reminder, be sure to visit us on the web at www.medievalstudies.ceu.hu slash radio. Send us an email at medievalradio at ceu.hu, and be sure to like us on Facebook. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure having you here, um, Dr. Correas. Well, it's been a great pleasure for me. The pleasure is all mine, and I hope that the listeners enjoy this. Thank you once again for listening. Goodbye. Okay. Yes. <laughs>